Well, please have a seat. Welcome to Grace. Really glad that you are here this morning. I want to ask the ushers to come forward and begin taking our offering. As they're doing that, um, I want to announce that uh, Sean uh, Conrad, our executive pastor, is going to be teaching a Sunday morning discipleship class for six weeks, beginning on March the 4th. This is going to be a great class. Um, Sean is a very gifted teacher. Sean is uh, certified in the Precept Ministries uh, process, and he's going to do Precept Ministries 40-minute series, Understanding Jesus' Death and Resurrection. It's going to be a great way for you to move into the, uh, to the Easter season. And so um, if you would like to be part of that, we're going to have an iPad sign-up out in the atrium. The books will cost $8. Uh, they're a really good workbook that you'll use. And you can sign up um, in the atrium, a little iPad sign-up on the table. Immediately after the second service, we're going to have a baptism here in our atrium. And so we're going to have uh, a, a time to just celebrate Believer's Baptism. <coughs> Would love to have you come back uh, for that event uh, after, the, uh, after the second service. Well, right now, I want to uh, invite Janice Broughton to come up. And uh, we are going to do something uh, fun here at Grace that we've done for the past several years. And uh, Janice, tell us a little bit about what, what that is. Okay, so it's working. It is. Okay. <laughs> On um, Saturday at 7 o'clock, if you come here, um, we're going to have a dance showcase. Um, it's called the Dance for Freedom. And um, what it does is it's going to um, bring attention to awareness and fundraise for anti-human trafficking. Um, so all the money that we raise this year, um, it's a $5 suggested donation at the door. Every penny of that goes to um, the organization we're supporting this year, which is the International Justice Mission, which if you don't know anything about them, go check them out. They're amazing. Well, this has had a twofold impact. I mean, it's obviously had an impact on the International Justice Mission because they received some good funding. It's also had an impact on those whom you mentor. Tell us a little bit about that. So it's actually a two-part event. So the first part... All during the day on Saturday, we have a dance-a-thon that's open to dancers 12 and up. And so um, they are also getting, they're getting lots of dance workshops um, that some of the pieces they learn, they'll perform at the showcase that night. But then they're also getting awareness about human trafficking. They're getting um, tools to help protect themselves, to know what it looks like. Um, we even had an instance this year where some of the, the tools that we gave the girls and their families um, it were able to um, stop grooming in its tracks um, here in Bartlesville. So it's kind of cool to see it impact um, the lives of kids that I care about. Some people may not know about this. How bad is human trafficking in our country? So the estimated statistics worldwide are anywhere from 20 to 40 million. Um, there are an estimated 100,000 children trafficked within the U.S. every year. Um, so there's not, it's, it's a crime that's hard to have an exact number um, because it's illegal. Um, it's illegal in every country in the world or almost every country in the world and yet it still happens. It's a global ec epidemic. Well, I know this is a passion for you. Yes. You've done a great job, you know, really raising awareness for this. So when is it and how can we be involved? Okay, so it's this Saturday, 7 o'clock, be here, um, $5 suggested donation at the door, invite your friends, invite your family, um, I'm going to be getting up and giving um, a presentation about human trafficking, 
So there is gonna be some sensitive topics discussed. So just to kind of give you a heads up on that um, so I wouldn't bring like a two-year-old. Um, but uh, you just get to sit back, enjoy a dance performance, and also learn about human trafficking and what you can do, how you can be involved in stopping it. And um, if you're a dancer, come to the Dance-a-thon starting at 9 o'clock Saturday morning at uh, Stage Art Dance. Well, th thanks for keeping uh, this on our radar screen. Really appreciate that. And you're a great mentor, so thanks for all the mentoring you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate being able to have it here every Yeah, year. absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, um, if you got a, a Bible, a smartphone, an iPad, an Android, whatever you use your Bible for reading your Bible, you can open it up to, uh, to John uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. And I want to begin this morning by telling you the story of Eduardo. Eduardo is a really neat guy, but he grew up in a single-family home in central Cuba, that could best be described as a very chaotic mess. Discovering alcohol in his early years, uh, he quickly uh, learned that uh, drinking was fun. It made him fun with his friends. By age 16, he was an inst instigator of crime sprees in his region of Cuba, and it landed him in jail. And from the ages of 16 to 26, Eduardo was in and out of the Cuban penal system, but mostly, mostly in. He got out in his mid-twenties, uh, and his prospects for the future were pretty grim. Uh, what do you do? He's got no education, no options for meaningful work, no friends, so he decided to do what he did really well, and that was drink. And he drank with uh, intent to kill himself. I uh, lived with his mom. And his mom find him, found him one day passed out in her home. His mom lifted him up, his, his pretty much lifeless body, and dragged him to church. Now, the church that we're talking about is, is a little house church, a little house church in a pretty humble house in central Cuba. And Eduardo, when he told us the story, Eduardo said, you know, here I was, I was passed out, I would wake up, I would see these people hovering around me, praying over me. Like I was probably on the floor and they were praying over me, I would pass out again. I would wake up and they were praying over me still and I would pass out, wake up and they were, they were praying over me. And he said, then I woke up and I realized I was not going to die, I was going to live. Well, he had, didn't have a whole lot to live for, uh, but a man shared the gospel with him. And he said, yeah, why not? Uh, he accepted Christ. That's when the miracle took place. Because the miracle was that he was instantly released from his alcoholism. He was instantly released from the spirit of rebellion that had dominated his life for so many years. And the spirit of Jesus inside him became incredibly strong. And he would go throughout his town telling anybody and everybody he knew about the one who would transform his life, Jesus. And pretty soon he'd led six people to Christ, then a dozen people to Christ, then about 20 people to Christ. And they were looking to him for spiritual leadership. I'm not even sure he had a full copy of the Bible at that point in time. But he was giving them what he knew. And pretty soon, incredibly, they started calling him pastor. Pastor. 
Well, we met Eduardo sometime after that when he entered the Church Planner Training Center School that Grace helped start in 2005, and Eduardo excelled in that school, the Simiente Misionera. And uh, he now has the largest church in Cuba of all the people who graduated from that school. Never had any education, was miraculously cured from his alcoholism and rebellion. Now, let me tell you, that, that guy did not have a parent say, you ought to be a pastor. He didn't have friends of his say, Eduardo, you're so gifted. You should become a pastor. Eduardo didn't have any, any grand call from God to be a pastor. What happened was he automatically began doing personal ministry after his life was transformed. And one of the things we observed in Cuba that I, I think is true all over the world, including here in Bartlesville, is this idea. People who genuinely encounter Jesus automatically do personal ministry. Now you look at that statement, you'd say, well, I don't know if that's true because that's not true for everybody that I know. And I know a lot of Christians who'd go to church and they don't, they don't automatically do personal ministry. What I'm saying is that when somebody's life is genuinely transformed, they automatically begin talking to people, having a heart for people, and wanting to help see people grow. And that is something that happens all over the world. Now, I get it here in America, we live in a different culture. American culture is far more complex, but it's still true here. When people encounter the transforming work of Jesus in their life, they automatically turn their sights toward friends and say, I want to help that person grow. Could be a, a best friend, it could be a child, it could be a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, an uncle. But that, is, that happens. People who are transformed by Jesus automatically begin to do personal ministry. Now what happens in the passage we're gonna read this morning is that Jesus begins to train his disciples in the dynamics of personal ministry. Now last week what we saw was Jesus was doing ministry up in the village of Sychar with the woman at the well. Well, now, now Jesus brings the disciples into the mix and the disciples are way out of their comfort zone and Jesus teaches them the basics of being a spiritual guide to somebody who is being drawn to God. And so we want to look at this, is how, how does personal ministry actually work back then and now? We want to start with the first steps. What are the first steps of personal ministry? And I just want to say that personal ministry almost always begins awkwardly. I, I chose the picture of a baby learning how to walk. And maybe it's because I'm a grandfather and I, I've seen my grandchildren, they're not all walking yet, but about seven of them, eight of them, I don't know, they're walking. And watching them walk is so much fun because it begins awkwardly. When you started walking, it began awkwardly. If we could go back and see your baby pictures from when you were a kid, they were very, very awkward. And that's how personal ministry always begins. We start in verse 27. Chapter four, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But nobody said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar, her water jar, and went away to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me 
all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So let me refresh your memory. Jesus and his disciples have been in the wilderness doing baptisms. They're inviting a lot of scrutiny. So Jesus says, we're, we're, going, we're going north, but there's two ways to go north. The common way avoided Samaria. Jesus went right smack through Samaria. It is a racially mixed place. And Jews did not like going through Samaria because it was very uncomfortable because there was all this racial animosity, Jews to Samaritans and the Samaritans back to the Jews. So Jesus chose the most direct route because God the Father led him there. And as Jesus arrives, he sits at Jacob's well up in Sychar, and a woman comes, and honestly, Jesus is the last person she wants to see. She does not want to see a man. She has issues with a man. She does not want to see a Jewish man because Jews have issues with Samaritans. But he's there, and she needs waters, water. The disciples are gone. They're gone, on, gone to buy some, buy some food, and Jesus engages her in discussion. And it's an amazing discussion. It is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus just flat out says, I am. I am speaks to you. The great God of the universe is speaking to you right now. It's a, it's a shocking thing that Jesus, Jesus says. So now the disciples come back, and Jesus is going to teach them how to minister cross-culturally to people who need Jesus. Do they do it with consummate skill like Jesus does? No way. So the disciples are going to be very awkward in front of the women. So imagine the scene. The disciples return with their bags of burgers and cheese fries and vanilla malts, and they saw a scene that was totally shocking in the ancient world. Shock number one is that he was speaking to a Samaritan. You don't do that in the ancient world. Shock number two is he's speaking to a woman. I mean, it was totally dysfunctional how men and women related in the ancient world. And shock number three was that Jesus and this woman, woman are having a friendly spiritual discussion. Like, they had no category for this. So what do the disciples do? Do they muster up and, and be gracious to the woman? Does, does Peter say, hi, I'm Simon Peter. I, uh, I run a fishing operation in, in Galilee. Got a, got a bunch of boats. What, what's your name? Oh, well, great to meet you. Does he do that? No, he does not do that. Instead, they, they cross their arms. They glare at the woman. Imagine 12 people glaring at you like, get out of here. What are you doing talking to our rabbi? Get out of here. That's the nonverbal cue that they were giving off to the woman at the well. You just talk about an awkward situation. Imagine that you're in your office and you go into the lunchroom and there are 12 people in the lunchroom. They're an animated conversation. You can tell it's gossip. And the moment you walk into the lunchroom, all conversation ceases. They look at you briefly, they turn away, they stare down at the table. Nobody says anything. You're thinking, awkward. I'm going to leave now. I, I don't know what happened, but I, I do not want to be here. This is a very, very awkward situation. Well, <clears throat> this woman has been transformed. Her issue was shame. 
What the disciples just did would have conveyed shame, but her shame has been healed. I think the woman had just turned her heart toward the great I am. She embraced this. I think proof of that is the fact she left her water pot by the side of the well to go back to, I mean, she's coming back. She went back to the village to announce what had just happened. This woman has changed. And it seems as if the disciples could care less. I mean, you know, if the woman in that moment were to judge the Christian faith on the basis of the disciples' action toward her, what would they have concluded about the Christian faith? I don't want any part of it. It's, it feels awkward. It feels shame-driven. It feels as if I'm less than. I don't want any part of that. So the disciples started off very awkwardly. Now it's the woman's turn to be awkward. The woman communicates in a way that would have been incredibly awkward back in the village. Unencumbered by her water pot, she rushes back to the village, which was probably a mile away. She goes to the village square in Sychar, and bursting into the town square, she does something that she never would have done before. She says, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. This couldn't be the Messiah, could it? Well, I suspect she repeated this more than once. You got to do that in town squares in the ancient world. You didn't repeat some, something just one time. I think she would probably repeat it a number of different times. And as the people began to gather, everybody is staring at her awkwardly. Awkwardness number one is that some of the people had gossiped about her. And they thought, aha, more stuff to gossip about. They were putting her down big time in sidecar, and they were getting a little bit more fuel for their gossip. Awkwardness number two was that there were probably some people in that town who thought, I've done some things with her. And if there's a guy out at the well who's talking about her past, I better get out there and do some damage control. I don't want my wife and my kids and my, my business partners finding out. That's awkwardness number two. Uh, the awkwardness in that town square was thick, like you could cut it with a knife thick. Uh, people are kind of laughing awkwardly. They're looking at each other awkwardly. They're looking at the woman awkwardly. And the woman breaks through the awkwardness with an incredibly, incredibly skillful statement. She says, can this be, be the Messiah? Now, the way this is worded in the Greek language definitely suggests a negative answer. No doubt about it. It definitely suggests a negative answer. What's interesting about this statement grammatically is that it is, um, it is the ironic use of the negative to mean the positive. When this negative part particle is used, there's a way to use it ironically in the negative so that it means the positive. It would be like, like, like me, me saying, getting, a, getting a, you know, a, a new car and saying, this couldn't be the best car in the world, or could it? Or could it? I'm using the ironic negative to mean the positive. And she's using it for motivational purposes. It's a very, very clever way to motivate these people to go, out to the village of Sychar where they're going to meet Jesus. So you can imagine these people going, 
we better get out there, and they queue up, and they march one mile out to the, well, it's Sychar. Awkwardness. Awkwardness, disciples to the woman. Awkwardness, the woman to her townspeople. Why does John tell us the story this way? When God begins to move in your life, and you want to share what you're learning to people who uh, need Christ, it's going to begin awkwardly. You feel nervous. Words don't form in your mind the way that you want. Words don't roll off your tongue the way that you want. My parents had this really, really cool spiritual turnaround when I was in college. And uh, I was the oldest. I had a sister who was 10 years younger and 13 years younger. Uh, I had another sister who was kind of out of the, out of the picture uh, by then, kind of a tough story. But um, my, my dad began to bring family devotions to the family dinner table. Now, my parents are some of the most gifted, articulate people I have ever met. They are very, very gifted. But when it came to sharing things spiritually around, around the dinner table, the first steps were a bit awkward. And I, I can remember looking at my dad as he was doing this, thinking, I respect the heck out of my dad for doing it. But it was a bit awkward first few times. I remember the first time I taught a Bible study in my fraternity. It felt awkward. Particularly when somebody wrote on the bulletin board, oh, spare us. It, it was just, it was, it was awkward. It was awkward. First time I shared the gospel door to door in Russia, I bungled things big time so bad my translator said, Rod, can I tell you a few things about sharing the gospel with the Russian people? <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, please, you better tell me. First time I led a small group, I talked way too much. Everybody knew it but me. It was awkward. It was awkward. A uh, few times, I, first few times here at Grace, I engaged in healing prayer. Um, I felt awkward. I don't know if anybody else felt that I was being awkward. I felt awkward about how I was saying things. Look, this awkwardness is by divine design. God wants you to wholly depend upon him. And if you immediately were astonishingly gifted, you would not have the humility that lends itself toward authenticity. That awkwardness drives you to say, Lord, I need you right now. I desperately need you right now. Help me, empower me, give me the words to say. The awkwardness also does something in the person that you are attempting to minister to. It conveys a humility. It conveys an appropriate authenticity. You know, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians who are smooth and slick and polished. They're wonderful communicators. I'm glad God makes people wonderful communicators. But there's a downside to the smoothness, to the slickness, to the polished nature of their communication. Because what it does is it doesn't cause the people who hear them to see humility. And you know, when you come to Jesus, humility is the culture. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And Jesus says, I'm humble, I'm humble. And for you to start awkwardly is a good thing for you. It's a good thing for the people who hear you because it, it shows a humility that is consistent with who Jesus is. Now, we start with the awkwardness. Now we go to the clear path. Jesus gives a wonderfully clear path to the disciples here. 
And I would argue that personal ministry is a, a defined process that brings something surprising, and that is immense satisfaction. Verse 31, meanwhile, the rabbis were, were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You can just kind of, you know, hear them saying this with sort of a, it's fun going to Israel, you know, and hearing some of the, some of the cadence of the speech in Israel. You know, you go, Rabbi, eat. You know, it's like, like, Rabbi, come on, eat, you know. And uh, he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, did you guys buy him something? Did, did, you, did you bring like some cliff bars or some lar bars? I mean, come on, what happened? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When you read this, you can feel the tension among the disciples. Uh, they do not want to be in Samaria. They want out of there so bad. Um, it seems as if they had like wolfed down their food on the way back from the city. And they're giving Jesus the, the bag from Chick-fil-A. And Jesus is sitting there at the well. He's not opening up the bag. He's not peering into the contents. He's just sitting there because he's been excited about the conversation that he's had. And they're, they're thinking, Rabbi, eat. Like, we want to get out of here. We want to spend any, any longer in, in Samaria than we, we have to. They are still struggling with racial prejudice, racial bigotry. And they don't even know it. Well, maybe, maybe they know it, but they don't think it's a problem. And Jesus is, is, just, is just living in the joy of having led this woman to himself. What Jesus says, guys, guys, you got to realize my food is doing what I just did. My food is helping someone become transformed at the very core of their being. I remember feeling this immense joy one time in Cuba. I probably told this story before. But I go into a home with Ed Schmidt and our friend uh, Nelson Perez our friend Hilberto Dodier and myself go into a room and Hilberto says to me, Rod, this person is dying. They've got maybe 15, 20 minutes left to live. Lead him to Christ. That's what Hilberto said to me. No pressure. No pressure. So this person was on their bed and um, I knelt down and I shared the gospel. Now I have to tell you, I have no idea what I said. I have no idea what I said. And however many minutes later it was, Hilberto said, okay, Rod, he came to Christ, we can go. And, and Nelson Perez, who was from, at that point, El Salvador, said, Rod, how did, how did you know how to say what you said? I have no idea what I said. I have no idea what I said. But I remember leaving, leaving that house, and sure enough, that person did pass away, leaving that house and just feeling this overwhelming sense of joy that God had allowed me to lead that person to Christ immediately prior to the time that they, that they died. I'm sure you've had encounters like that as well, felt that same way when one of our children came to Christ and um, they prayed to receive Christ and they were so just warmly tender in that moment. Daddy, thank you. Daddy, thank you. I'm going to love Jesus now. I thought, oh man, there's nothing like this. 
This is, this is, this is food. It's like what C.S. Lewis used to say, you know, stuff like this is like steak and mashed potatoes. Now, I have a plant-based diet. I don't eat steak and mashed potatoes. But I resonate with what C.S. Lewis says. I mean, it's joy. This is what Jesus is saying. This is my food. I love doing this. So now the disciples realize, okay, we're going to be here for a while while Jesus explains this. So what Jesus is going to do is give, give them some principles for personal ministry. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The disciples lifted up their eyes and they saw literal harvest fields, wheat waving in the wind, and I suspect they looked over here and they saw Samaritans coming their way. Oh, fields white for harvest and Samaritans ripe for harvest as well coming to Christ. I, I, I suspect that's what was happening. Already the one who, re, who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is saying to him, guys, you are going to enter into my labor. I'm going to teach you how to have a harvest of souls right here in this place that you hate, which is Samaria. So this gives us a five-fold path to basic personal ministry. First principle, start with a conviction that everyone is seeking after God. He says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. This, the disciples had no concept that the Samaritans were seeking after God, none. Now, I know some of you are doing a little, little mental concordance work in your mind. You're remembering Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two says, none seeks after God. But there is a tension between Romans chapter two and Acts 17, 27, where God says, Paul says, God's purpose for the nations is, is that they would seek after him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. Here's the way these work. Yeah, in our sinfulness, we tend to not seek after God of our own accord. But God working in our life moves us into a place where we do seek and we long for things. Talk about this all the time. All of us have got this hole in our soul. It is a God-shaped vacuum. And the reason why we seek is because we want this God-shaped hole to be filled. What you have to realize in doing personal ministry is that everybody is seeking after God. People who you work with in your office, they're seeking after God. The people who are at your school, they're seeking after God. The people in your small business, they're seeking after God. The people that you see running the Pathfinder, they're seeking after God. The people that go to concert venues, they seek after God. Everybody at some level is seeking after God. Do they have a sign that says, seeker? Of course not. But, but you know by faith that everyone at some level is seeking after God. And so what you do is you look at people from the eyes of faith and say, Lord, will you show me the way in which this person is seeking so that I can enter into your work, the work that you are already doing? Jesus gives us another basic principle. We, we must become skilled at sowing and reaping. He talks about 
the one who reaps, receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Sowing and reaping is a, a discipline. It's, a, it's the discipline of building relationships with non-believers and sharing the gospel message. That's sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping suggests as a process to evangelism. I may share the word, I build a relationship, I might share the word again, I might build a relationship some more. It's an ongoing process. It's a process that takes time. Farmers never throw their seed in the field and then wake up the next morning and go, darn it, they didn't come up. I'm so mad. What would you think about a farmer who sowed the seed on a Friday and a Saturday wakes up and says, this farming stuff does not work. I sowed yesterday, I want to reap today. No, no farmer would do that. That'd be ridiculous. Sowing and reaping is a process that takes a lengthy period of time. If you're going to engage in personal ministry, you've got to become good at the process. And that means, to be very practical about it, you've got to learn the gospel. You've got to know what the gospel is. You've got to know the dynamics of the gospel. I tell you, one of the things that's made me very confident in the gospel message is the time that I've spent in Russia, going door to door in Russia, the time that I spent going door to door in Cuba, the time that I spent at Search Ministry sharing the gospel with people who are very far from Christ, and the time that I spent here in Bartlesville talking, sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ. Because one of the things that I see happening is that somebody who places their faith in Jesus Christ enters into this, this period of transformation that is an adventure. And so my, my challenge to you is you've got to become good, skilled at the process of sowing and reaping if you're going to be effective in doing personal ministry. Jesus now shares a third principle. Personal ministry is always a team effort. He talks about sower and reaper rejoicing together. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus was the one who sowed some seeds now it looks as if the disciples are going to be the ones who are going to reap the harvest. Jesus did not sow the first, uh, the disciples didn't sow the first seed, Jesus did. But apparently the disciples are going to be involved in the harvest process. Sowers tend to build relationships and cast seeds. Reapers are the ones who help people cross the line of faith. I have always been a better sower than a reaper. Always. I used to think, oh, I, would, I wish I could be a really great reaper. I'm not. I'm a much better sower than a reaper. But I've got a friend who's an incredible reaper. And my friend will be able to go to somebody and say, would you like to come to Christ? You know, after a discussion. The person says, yeah. Yeah, I would. My son is a great reaper. My son, Jared, who lives and works in North Africa, is a great reaper. It's easy for him to ask somebody, would you like to trust Christ? And then people do it. And uh, he said to me numerous times, Dad, I don't have the gift of evangelism. And yet every time I'm with him, I see him being incredibly effective at leading people to Christ. I sowed seeds in my grandfather's life for many years. Um, I thought he was an impossible case. A friend of mine shares the gospel with my grandfather, and he comes to Christ. How does that happen? Some are good sowers, and some are good reapers. But the third principle is, it's a team effort. 
It's not one person does everything. Fourth principle is that personal ministry immerses us in the supernatural. Notice the term, I sent you. Jesus is talking to the disciples. I, the Son of God, sent you, the disciples, to reap for that which you did not labor. That sounds like a supernatural engagement. And it's going to be the same thing with you as well. If you have a desire to excel in personal ministry, it means that you have to realize this is a supernatural thing. This is, this is God empowering me with his spirit, giving me the words to say, opening doors. This is not all up to me. I don't need to feel the pressure to do the thing myself. I want you to think for a second about sentness. Sentness. Um, sentness is a positional thing. Sentness is the conviction you are in the city of Bartlesville for a reason. Why are you here? Were you born here? Were you transferred here? Why are you here? Are you retiring here? Why are you here? Do you go to, go to school here? Sentness is the concept that God put me in this city for his reason, and I need to figure that out and do personal ministry with that understanding. Sentness is the conviction that you're in your job for a reason. You may hate your job. You may love your job. But you're, you're in this job for a particular reason. Why is that? What does God have for you in the job that you have? Sentence is the confidence that you're at your school for a reason, if you're in high school or college or graduate school. Sentence is the confidence that God is at work in your family, in your friendship. Sentence is the idea that the supernatural God has sent me into my life situation right now to do personal ministry at some level. I was in Los Angeles this past week at the E-Church conference incredibly, incredibly helpful conference. I'm at the E-Church conference with people who are in very cool cities, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco. They're doing all these awesome things in these great cities, Denver, San Antonio, talking about the awesome things they're doing and the awesome cities they live in. And I'm listening to all this, and I'm saying to myself, I'm glad I'm in Bartlesville. This is a good city. I love this city. I'm glad that God put me in this city. I embrace my citizenship in this city. And that's what you have to do as well. If you really in, in, encounter this idea, the supernatural God sending you to a place, you're here for a reason. And then the fifth principle, personal ministry brings joy. Talking about sower and reaper high-fiving with each other. Yes, yes, we scored the touchdown, meaning we led somebody to Christ. This person is growing. This person is maturing. We've seen a miracle here. We've seen a transformation here. It's the idea that God is big and he is powerful. And then we see the third, out, the third phase of this and this outcome is that personal ministry creates this amazing sense of community. Uh, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all things I'd ever done. So when the Samaritans came, came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed with him two days. Time out. Time out. If you're the disciples, and you are, you are standing there at Jacob's well, and you see 50 to 100 people in the village coming towards you, what do you feel? 
Remember, there's a lot of racial animosity in this place. Is it possible the disciples are going, oh my gosh, we have a crowd of Samaritans coming our way. I mean, things could get ugly. Things could get violent. I, it's, it's a risk to stay here. I don't know what, what all that they were thinking, but in their flesh, that's what a Jewish person would have thought. And what, God is gonna, what Jesus is going to do is show them that real transformation results in a supernatural Christian community. Clouds are gathered by the well. The woman tells her story. All eyes are glued on the woman. Jesus explains who he is and why he's come. All eyes are glued onto Jesus. Then I can see the disciples going, oh my gosh, all these people, these Samaritans are going to come to Christ like, like right now. This is, this is incredible. And then they say, um, Jesus and the disciples, would you guys... Would you guys like to come to our village and stay in our houses and eat our food? And the disciples are thinking that's going to render us unclean. Um, that, I don't know if I want to do that. I mean, this is a different people racially. They did it. They did it. They did it. And what happened in the next 48 hours? Man, it seems like the whole village came to Christ. What the disciples realized was that Jesus is the one who solves all racial animosity. He solves all racial animosity because the body of Christ is a body that includes people from all different racial backgrounds. You know, when you get into heaven, Revelation 5, 9, you're going to be around people of every different language and tongue and nationality and ethnic group. Jesus is the only one in this world who will solve the problem of racial animosity in this world. The only one. We see a country, we see a world filled with racial tension. Are there some political solutions? Maybe. Maybe. The ultimate solution is a spiritual solution. The ultimate solution is, is Jesus coming together. So with that in mind, let me give you three brief takeaways. Here's the big idea. Personal ministry brings intense satisfaction in the context of supernatural community. That's the main idea of the story. Personal ministry brings intense satisfaction in the context of a supernatural community. Takeaway number one, I just would encourage you, learn a gospel presentation that's easy to communicate. Everybody that I know who regularly leads people to Christ has a gospel, gospel message that they can easily communicate that rolls off their tongue. If you want to do personal ministry, that, that is a really great place to begin. I know people who chafe against this, saying, ah, I shouldn't have to memorize something. I shouldn't have to know something. That's, that's reductionistic. I'm just telling you, I've seen a lot of people come to Christ because the person who was sharing the gospel with him knew a gospel presentation backward and forward and was willing to share it. Second takeaway, learn how to tell your story and tell it well. Everyone of us in here has a story. I would encourage you to, to tell a five-second version and a, maybe a five- to 30-minute version. Tell your story. 
What is your faith story? How did you come to Christ? And then final takeaway, assess. What in your life give, gives evidence of the supernatural? I will say that in year 2018, people really want to know, all right, how did Jesus really change your life? I mean, is this, did this just make you like more moral or more ethical? Or did he really do something transformative in you? If he's done something transformative in you, share that story. Because people, especially in the year 2018, they need to, they need to hear that story and understand more about that story. So Jesus is training his disciples in the basics of personal ministry. It begins awkwardly. Just, just accept it. Accept the awkwardness of it. It's okay. There's a five-fold path, five-fold path. But really, you know, what, what, what that path comes down to is it's a, it's a path of loving the people in front of you and sharing your story. And the, the, the result is this incredible supernatural community that transcends racial barriers and language barriers and, and, and cultural barriers. Satisfaction. Personal ministry, the bottom line, is food to eat that brings you joy. Let's stand for a closing prayer. While you stand, I want to remind you that our prayer team is going to be up here after the service. They'd love to pray for you about anything that's going on in your life right now. I want to remind you that the baptism we're going to have is immediately after the second service in our atrium. We'd love to have you be there. Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing goodness to us. Lord, I pray that you would draw Grace Community Church into the joy of regular personal ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday afternoon.